Thank you. Um, my name is Adam. I'm a psychiatrist here in Cheltenham. Uh, a comment and a question. Uh, I think the extraction of disease from the patient or from people is partly now a function of health economics, isn't it? We're in a system where we get paid by results, by the disease, not by the patient. So I'll just leave that observation for a minute. Although there is, I think, a political agenda with a small p about deprofessionalising and so on. Without, for, for a minute, reducing the importance of biography, and as a psychiatrist it's my bread and butter in a way, is there not a risk that messing about in someone's biography is actually just a huge narcissistic buzz for us? Um, you know, GPs and, and psychiatrists were full of tales about, gosh, you've sort of seen the patient, what they've been through, the house I've just been to visit, the life they have to lead. It's a great privilege for us to know all that and to poke about in it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's always necessary. And I wonder sometimes whether there's a risk that it answers our own needs, not the patient's needs. I, 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 I agree with that, and there is something about... Um, it comes up particularly around issues of violence, perhaps, around um, survivors of... There's a sort of voyeuristic element in that is sometimes very, very difficult. But I think I think it's very it's 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 very much there in in John Berger's The Fortunate Man that one of the things that people need is recognition, um, and and not to have your uniqueness as an individual. Um, the meaning you attach to your own life and your own achievements, acknowledged to any extent in your interaction around your disembodied disease, is to abandon people to an extent. Um, so, like all things, and we haven't really touched on it, I mean, almost everything we talk about has two poles. And it's time we went on and on and on and on about the golden mean again. Um, and I think there's a golden mean with this as well, that you can take too far, like courage can become recklessness, mm -hmm. da da da, da. Um, Having an interest in people's lives can become voyeuristic, but it doesn't mean you, you then abandon the whole exercise um, because we need to recognise each other's achievements. Richard, I think it's time to... Well, I just want to come back to your first point because... Um, the origins of how we have extracted um, disease from the patient. Um, it, there is an economic dimension to it, I'm sure you're right, but I think there's, there's something even more worryingly fundamental than that, and that is it's the nature of, of the science of medicine that, that we do today, uh, and that's harder to deal with. It's, it's what's valid knowledge in medicine. And um, the director of the Wellcome Trust, who's a, Mark Wolpert, who's a man I admire greatly, is going to become our next chief scientist, done a fantastic job in many ways at the Wellcome Trust. But when he was asked, you know, when you go to work every day, you know, you must be full of the excitement of, dis of these dis extraordinary discoveries, how they can be put to patient benefit. And he said, no, actually, no, 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 not at all. That's not why I think the work that we fund is important. The work we fund is important because it illustrates the wonder of science and the wonder of discovery and the wonder of the biological mechanisms of disease, which, of course, at one level is very Richard Dawkins-like. Fantastic. Yes, there is a sense of enchantment, wonder, whatever, of, of the science of life. 
But if that's, if that's what we see as the purpose of our valid knowledge in medicine, that we're just creating all this amazing wonder about all the molecular... That seems to me to be deeply troubling. That, that I think if we're spending all these billions or hundreds of millions on medical science and it's all about our own personal wonder, then there's something that's gone seriously wrong about the medical research enterprise. You know, it needs to be directed, surely does it not, at the needs and demands and concerns of our society. And what has happened is that we've had this vast separation that's taken place between the medical research enterprise and its purpose and the demands of our society. And the two now work not in concert very well. Patient-directed wonder, I believe. Um, oh, Chris, yes, of course. Um, you asked Sam what do doctors bring uh, to the consultation I think it's quite simple you bring yourself as a human being and you present yourself mm. to the patient as that person not as a doctor in a white coat not as a purveyor of science but somebody to sit and share part of that journey with the patient I don't see why science actually should stop you doing that it should be there in the background to help you make the right decisions for patients. You need to have imagination. So I saw about three and a half to 4,000 people die of lung cancer during my career. And I have to, each time I see a new patient, forget those three and a half thousand people and see a new individual, a new family, new people. And you need to bring yourself there. And that's just what I'd like to say about that communication. But I think there's something we all missed and we haven't mentioned, and that there isn't one communication. There's a whole lot of communications, and the doctor is one small part of that. There may be the person who's delivering the post who can direct you, but I had the, the fortune to be in hospital several times in the last several years and to sit in a ward with six other people and watch what happened and watch the nurses come to the bedside give information, somebody else come, a doctor come, and all those bits of information were half informations, and it ended up as a mess of misinformation. And I could see it all going wrong all around me, and it was the best learning experience I've ever had. Yeah. So anybody who has the opportunity to spend a week in hospital, Absolutely. do look and see what yeah. happens. Absolutely. Can I make a brief yes. comment on that, Sam? Yes. Thank, thanks for that comment. One, one of the things you said, science is one small part of the interaction. And I think um, one of the things for me is, is that in the course of a consultation, I think certain things become foregrounded and backgrounded at, at different points. I mean, this, we've talked a little bit about subjectivity, but there's also objectivity. And throughout the consultation, there are times when the clinician has to be completely, has to take an objective stance towards the body of the patient and focus in a very atomistic way on one very small bit, the lung perhaps, in, in the case of your patients with lung cancer, and, and think about that to, to, to the, to, for, so that they can exert expertise. Because, I mean, I think it's very, very important to acknowledge that as, as doctors, we're supposed to develop expertise and that we should be clinical experts. Um, 
I don't think we can have expertise about human experience. I mean, that's part of being a human being. But we have expertise and should have expertise about the particular clinical field we're working in. Mm -hmm. And that's partly why the patient is coming to see us. But that's part, part, part of that is about being embodied and understanding how my body can interact with another body and how I can understand things by doing that. So I think at times one can be very, very objective about the body and then come back and then become the subjective interacting person in that relationship. Oscillation, Oscillation. is key. Yeah. And there's some, just at the top there, uh, on the right, have we got a microphone at the top? Um, I'm Elaine I'm Smith. I'm one of the rheumatologists locally here. Um, I'm also a tutor for PRIME, which stands for Partnership in International Medical Education. And that's linked with the Royal College of um, Physicians and GPs. And I think what the session um, this afternoon has been focusing on is a thing called patient-centered medicine. And PRIME specializes in that. Um, and I think there is going to be a shift in, in the way trainees are taught medicine. And um, just want to say that I'm the Middle East representative for Prime. So I've been to Palestine and Israel with the Physicians of Human Rights this year, plus Bosnia, plus India, working in the um, slum, uh, slums of Delhi. And I, I go thinking, right, lovely Western medicine, let's see what I can do. And um, absolutely Every single time I, I go out to these countries, um, it's a holistic view that patients want. So um, in India, no, no, it's not treat me, get me better. It's very much patient-centered, um, make my life a little bit better. And, and the same very much in, in Bosnia. So patient-centered medicine is, um, it seems to um, cross all cultures. And even the poorest of the poor, you think actually they just want a cure. It's not the case. So I think it's patient-centered medicine, isn't it, that we're talking about here? And, and can that's you, can you t just interested mm. in the view, can we teach this? What is, are we talking about teaching a set of um, skills? Is it about, mm. is it a culture of how to be as a human being? Is it about virtue? How do you teach mm. this? Um, well, I think the Royal College of GPs are, um, with Prime, are, are sort of uh, teaching juniors this way. Um, so as a, when I went on the tutor course, it's listening to what the patient's saying. So an example was when I was in Bosnia, um, there was a lady with Sjogren's syndrome, and she had dry eyes, dry mouth, polyarthritis, ray nodes, and um, salivary gland swelling. And this is through interpreters, mind you, but um, uh, I kept saying, now, I can help your arthritis, I can help your rainers. And the interpreters kept saying, no, she just, just wants you to get rid of the swelling around her face where the protic glands are swollen because that's a social stigma. Can you do something about that? She doesn't care about the arthritis. So <laughs> I think one of the things is... It is actually, listen to what the patient's saying. This is what I, I can you do something for me with this? Um, rather than going in with a doctor-centered approach. Richard, so, did you want to? I'm so glad you brought in the international dimension. Um, because I, I think that the context <laughs> of the patient, the geographic, cultural, political context of the patient determines 
what valid knowledge is and the constructs around disease. I mean, you mentioned the Occupy Palestinian Territory. For the past four years, every year I've been back there. We do, we're doing an ongoing project there. And one of the things that the research community in the West Bank has done is to create, by studying their population, um, a particular notion of social suffering, which affects it's a population-level effect. It informs all their attitudes to their own illness, and it's derived from their sense of occupation, being under siege. Um, and, and that is a very real thing in their lives, and it changes the dynamics of the disease process in their understanding of it. And you can't possibly do patient-centered medicine without understanding the nature of occupation. So I think, again, it comes back to the context we're in. So let's come back to what Iona said earlier, this, the importance of austerity. Um, uh, that is going to change the way we think about illness in our society. It's a major structural, political, economic component of, of our environment. And... And that changes the way we think about everyday issues in our society. There was a paper published in Science last week looking at the differences between the way people who are poor think compared with people who are rich. And depending on how much resources you have, you think differently. You, give, you privilege different issues differently. And that is something immensely important in the way we practice medicine and the way we make we interact with our patients and we tend to again not think about those issues the choices people have in their lives because of the circumstances in which they uh, live and, and cigarette smoking is a very good example we take a simplistic approach which says you must you must stop doing this yeah. uh, we don't un, uh, you know we, we take no cognizance of the fact that it's the only thing that gets some people through the week yeah. and to mention palestine which i believe has the highest proportion of women with uh, well people with higher education who smoke because they reckon that if you're going to be exposed to tear gas, what's the smoke issue, um, you know? And, uh, and, and so context makes absolutely all the difference, and yet we have this uniform thing that says smoking is a social evil, you're not protecting your health for the benefit of society, stop it, um, which is a, what we might call a thin discourse. Can I just... Go back to the issue of, tra of training, uh, which because um, I think there has there has been this sort of mention of how do we sort of how do we bring on the, the next generation, and um, I, I struggle a little bit I think with um, with with I, I teach medical students and I struggle a little bit with people at that with students at that stage, uh, in fact, in, in attempting to kind of open out these perspectives. There's something about trying to retain. The individual who comes into medicine and not get, let it get lost, but inevitably there is a kind of loss. There's a kind of a being swamped and taken over by the by the, the training, the, the need to understand so much. And I think, I mean, I, I'm really delighted. I must find out more about Prime because the, the, I, I now feel convinced that that it really is at the stage of. Of, of, of later training when, where, where one has the experience of consultations, when, when one has experience of clinical practice, and understanding of uh, and, a, and a, bit of, a bit more ease with the knowledge and the skills that one then is able to relax and take more of a holistic um, approach to consultation. Sort of now. Well, I mean, now, well, now at the stage of, of, of GP trainees, perhaps uh, tra training, training at, the, at the kind of postgraduate level. I mean, I'm, 
my field of medical humanities is always sort of focused on the undergraduate medical student. Uh, I just think that's not the right time to no, do I it. No, I agree entirely. I mean, well, in fact, more now, you know, GPs, consultants, nurses on the wards, yeah. psych no, psychologists, no, it, yeah. it, there's a notion that somehow it stops and we just set no, off. But no. in fact, we have time for one final comment from Nigel Jones just there. Nigel Jones, I'm a geriatrician. Um, are we not all somewhat disembodied observers of our own bodies who little understand its processes or functions and therefore the diagnostic process in understanding another person's is actually to understand how they feel and interpret those odd feelings that we get from our bodies and it's part of the argument as to where do we exist do we just exist within this mush with a long tail that uses the body and the body is just a survival system for the brain or do we exist as part of the whole body? I don't know, that's a separate argument I'm not going to get into, but part of the training and understanding of diagnostic process is that you allow the person to feel that they can talk freely about their symptoms because it's very difficult to say that one disease will present with one style of symptoms and to my mind the problematic issue with diagnostic process is not that the diseases are different, the diseases are the same, it's how that person interprets it, feels it, talks about it and it's the ability to give the person the feeling they've got all the time to talk about it and if you fail to do that you fail to make the diagnostic process. I wish I had your faith in the in the um, diagnostic taxonomy and its accuracy and I mean there's a whole no, no, seminar no, to be had on diagnostic classifications and their relationship to any sort of notion of truth. I mean do we need, really need however many how many hundreds of diagnoses are in DSM-4 David? I mean the, 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 the variety of, of diagnostic subcategories and all this sort of, it's like, um, it's like the worst sort of twi twi twittering, I mean, twitching. I mean, um, uh, no, 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 bird, watch, bird watching, um, you know. Can I just say that I, I wasn't meaning to having a, 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 the bottom line, we are in a diagnostic service. We are trying to make understanding of people's disease or suffering and deciding can we do anything to improve, change, or adapt. If we can't, then perhaps the counselling process is equally important. So I wasn't trying to disregard or be, make that even more complicated. The reality is how do you understand another person's experiences without giving them time to talk about it? Exactly. And to hold back the label. Absolutely. Hold back the label until you... You can end up with no label, but you've done the right thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There we agree. We can agree on that. Right. <laughs> on that note, and we'll have, because you've all been so good,